There's a sense in which every, every time I stand before you, I feel like I'm about to preach the most important sermon I've ever preached. <laughs> that happens pretty much every single Sunday morning. This morning was a little bit different. I always get up early, and sometimes that may be 3 o'clock. Sometimes when we come here for, you know, I hear all the jokes about the pastor who only works for half a day on Sunday. Uh, but let me tell you, I'm not sure that that person actually exists because, uh, you know, I begin to digest what I'm going to talk about next week, tomorrow. The, one of the first things I do on every Monday morning is begin to start working on the sermon I'm going to deliver the next Sunday because I, I believe this to be true, that what I do, what I'm doing right now is the very most important thing I do as a pastor. Yes, I need to be with people when they're ill. When I leave, when we leave here today, I'm going to be going to the hospital down in her, uh, Inverness to be with the Edmondson family. That's important. But let me just say this, what we're doing right now is even more important than that. There's nothing that we do in this church that is any more important than hearing the Word of God preached on Sunday morning. Something that we in the Reform Circles and lots of other pastors take very seriously. But it is no substitute for personal and private Bible study and reading. If you want to grow in Christ, it will not happen apart from it. We must engage in Bible reading and Bible studying regularly. Sometimes that happens corporately. Sometimes it happens individually. But it must be both. If you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, Keith's going to teach me everything I need to know about everything, then you are sadly mistaken. There's nothing, nothing that can take the place of personal Bible study and personal Bible knowledge because it's only by that knowledge that you are able to speak forth what Scripture really teaches I mean, how many people do you know, and how many times have you done it yourself? Let's just be honest about it this morning, that you've, you, you've had some idea, and you've, you've picked one particular scripture out of the Bible, and, and, and that's what you throw forth anytime you're having a conversation about this, that, or the other, without thinking about what we consider to be the infallible word of interpreting the Bible, and that is considering everything the Bible says about a particular thing to come to the right knowledge and understanding of what God's will and purpose is for us. I want to encourage you to be like the Bereans and anything that you hear from this pulpit or anything you hear in any of these Bible studies that are led by different people in, in Sunday school and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I pray and I hope that you will weigh it in the balance of Scripture and if it holds up to it, you believe it. If you don't, you oust it. Remember, I was... Uh, as we began chapter 8 a few weeks ago, the, the James Boyce made a statement 
uh, in his commentary just about Romans 8 in general, saying that it is, is, is his opinion, it's the most important, the most important verse in, or chapter in the whole of Scripture. It's also one that many people grossly misunderstand. And I would imagine that's why he thinks it's most important. I think mainly what he's saying here is it's it's the chapter that the church today needs to hear unlike others. That's how important it is. Unfortunately, it's one that very often church people avoid like the plague. I'd imagine there are a number of pastors that that probably through their lifetime of preaching purposely avoid Romans chapter 8. One of the reasons I preach the way that I do is I preach through books is it prevents me from doing that. Let me tell you, I've preached sermon after sermon that I never would have chosen to preach if it was up to me. I'm bound every week to preach on a particular part of God's Word that He gives me to preach on that week. I can't, don't sit in my office on, Sunday, on Monday morning saying, hmm, I wonder what I need to preach on next week. Oh, the people need to hear another sermon about finances. Or the people need to hear a sermon about evangelism. Or they need to hear this, or they need to hear that. God decides on Monday morning what you and I are going to talk about the following Sunday. Whether we want to or not whether it's divisive in the church or not. And there are some things that are divisive, and Romans chapter 8 is one of them. Because of the things that we are about to come to. So we're picking up in Romans 8, and, and let me just tell you, we do everything I've got planned to do, we're going to be here for hours, so... We're going to get through some of this this morning, probably not all of it, and we will pick it up next week and wrap things up maybe, okay? Let me just tell you, this is so deep. We could spend the next six months just on this. Just to give you a little bit of warning, but we're picking up with verse 26 in Romans 8 this morning, and we're going through verse 30, maybe. Probably not. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. And I'm not so sure verse 31 shouldn't belong there. But what what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who is against us? In other words, what Paul's saying here is we take all those things I just said into, uh, into, into account. We need to praise God because it shows us that God is for us. He's not against us. I don't know about you, but I feel very weak as a Christian. 
Sometimes there's way too much worldly influence upon me. There's a sense in which every Christian is weak. But there's a strength to be had. And it's not a strength we're going to find in ourselves. It is strength we're going to find in Christ Jesus. And just remember, one of the things Paul has been teaching just recently as we're getting to this point is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Not, in, not, not that the Spirit indwells certain Christians, but the Holy Spirit indwells every Christian. If there's, the Spirit's not in a person, they're not a Christian. And if the Spirit's present, there will be manifestations of that presence. Holy Spirit indwells us. He helps us in our weakness. Weakness that we cannot overcome, but the Holy Spirit is God in us, and therefore He can overcome it. Reminded this morning that we need to remember something, and that is that we have two heavenly intercessors. Very often when we talk about the intercession, we think, talk about the intercession of Christ on our behalf as he's in the heavenly places now. He's there, standing for us. Our representative there in the heavenly throne room, waiting for the time when we are there with him in that heavenly throne room. Until that time, he stands in our place. He speaks on our behalf. Your name is echoed through the halls of heaven. By Christ. Unrelentingly, unceasingly. But we also have the intercessory action and activity of the Holy Spirit. Who resides in us. Who stays with us. As we are here in this world. I hope you pray. I hope you pray a whole lot. I hope you pray as you should. Because there's a wrong way to do it and there's a right way to do it. One of the primary things that the Holy Spirit does on our behalf is He intercedes for us when it comes to our prayers. He takes not necessarily our works, but he takes what is going on in our heart. As we pray to God, there's a sense in which he interprets what we say and speaks it on behalf to the Father and to the Son. Do you understand that there's a sense in which even where we are right now, that our words and our thoughts and the intentions of our heart are too vulgar to fall upon holy ears?
that we desperately need that intercession, someone who takes our prayers and conveys them to the Father and to the Son. searches our hearts. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul was a remarkable man. God used Paul in remarkable ways. There's a sense in which Paul understands these things far better than you and I do, and he's trying to explain them to us. How do we know that he understands these things far better than we do? Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he reveals a mysterious trip that it appears he himself took to heaven. Let me read for you. Uh, he doesn't identify himself, but... It's pretty obvious when you read everything in this chapter that he's talking about his own personal experience. This is something that actually happened to the Apostle Paul. Literally. Whether it was in his spirit or it was in body. He doesn't even self know. But what he knows is this. is This is a reality that he himself experienced. It really took place. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know. God, know, God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Now, what is the third heaven? Who knows for certain? I would say it's probably the very center of heaven, that throne room possibly that we've talked about in Revelation who was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. In other words, what I'm telling you here is that Paul understands these things a lot better than we do. Why? Because he's seen things and heard things that really no one else apart from Jesus Christ, has. He wrote the book of Romans. Don't get the order of the, of, the, of the letters messed up here because they're not arranged in chronological order. Paul actually wrote the book of Romans well after, probably, he wrote 2 Corinthians. So this is the Paul, the man that experienced that, who is now writing his brothers and sisters in Rome. There's a sense in which he's experienced God in a way that really no one short of Jesus Christ ever did. Paul obviously was a man transformed. And that's probably one of the things that experience that he had transformed him probably like just about nothing else ever would. He's experienced the paradise in a real way, temporarily. 
He's the same one who was talking just recently about, about suffer all you have to in this life. Suffering is nothing in this life. Suffering is nothing. I don't care how much you suffer. It doesn't matter to, to, to a hill of beans when you compare it to the benefit and the greatness of the glory of the paradise that Christ has made for you. As a matter of fact, if, if we had this experience like Paul had, then you and I, we would look upon suffering in a very different light and we would understand something that it's absolutely, I don't care how bad it seems to other people, it's absolutely nothing. We're coming now to one of the most controversial passages in all of Scripture. So controversial that, uh, well, it's not only here, but it's in other places, that it has caused probably one of the principal points of division in the church of Jesus Christ in our day. There basically are two understandings of what Paul is about to say. Uh, from a human perspective, let me just tell you, there is only one right one. God doesn't give us multiple right understandings of things. One of them is right, and the other one is wrong. Before we go any further, I want to read for you Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. Some of my most favorite verses in the whole book of Isaiah, maybe in the whole Old Testament. Where God says this, he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are the, uh, my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That need to define our understanding of everything else. In other words, what might make logical sense to us as people doesn't necessarily mean it's really logical and reasonable to believe it. We have to believe what Scripture teaches without imposing human understanding upon it. Because when we impose human understanding upon it, then we introduce human error. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. We're about to start looking at what is called the ordo salutis or the order of salvation. Your understanding of how all this plays out stems from one thing. And that is the question of whether this is God doing, and in a sense, entirely doing, or is this God doing some and people doing some? Now, we are proudful this morning to tell you that we are reformed. Maybe we shouldn't be proud of it, but... Uh, one of the things about being Reformed is we really believe that we hold 
to the idea of the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture to a degree that lots of other people just simply don't. Uh, we sit here today because of a historical thing that took place hundreds of years ago called the Protestant Reformation. There had never been any Protestant Reformation. If we were in church, we would be in a Roman Catholic church more than likely. Principal leaders would be Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, lots of others. Lots of people that went before them. Augustine, Wycliffe, Huss. We believe that the Bible is God's truth in its entirety. And it's given to us for a lot of reasons, and that is because you and I have a sinful nature, and that means we have to have something that is solid and true that will guide us. Because if we leave it up to ourselves, we will go astray, and it won't take very long for that to happen. Let me tell you, if you ever go off on the slippery slope of coming to the conclusion that the Bible is not truly the inerrant word of God, then you're off on the slippery slope. And let me tell you, it will carry you to places you never thought you would go. The church lives and breathes on the idea that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. Without it, everything becomes goosey-loosey or loosey-goosey, and you can believe just about anything you want to about anything. But the reformers, you need to understand that these guys that, that, that really began to, to, to appear as, as more as a group, they, they, they had been there all along, all the way, Augustine lived between three and 400 A.D., so just a few hundred years after Christ. So it wasn't just these guys in the four, uh, in this reformation that took place. Uh, there were people who questioned the belief of the church on a regular basis, all through the history of the church. Because they saw things that were being practiced and taught that really were not found in Scripture. So above everything else, the, the importance of the Protestant Reformation is this is put the hands in the Bible of the people for the first time in the history of the church. You need to understand that the church willfully, purposely, intentionally withheld the Bible from the people for a long time. One of the reasons that you and I can sit here this morning with a Bible in our hands, and there's not just one up here on the podium that I read from, and you're not even able to touch it, is because of what these men went through. To bring you the Bible. Sometimes they're referred to, referred to as the reformers. What they were doing. They weren't trying to break free of the church. They were trying to bring change to the church within. They were all Roman Catholic clergy. 
But more and more it became obvious to them that there were certain doctrines and, and ideas and beliefs that were propagated by the church that did not hold up in Scripture. They were in fact contrary to what Scripture teaches. So they were brought to the point of conviction that they had to do something. And it was never their intention to break free of the Roman Catholic Church. The church kicked them out. Not the other way around. What you're going to find in regard to these verses, there's two basic you know, understandings of things. And one of those is the Reformed view, which is depicted by that acrostic tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance or preservation of the saints. You've heard it over and over again if you've been in Reformed churches. Those are basically the distinctives that set Reformed understanding of things apart from others. For almost 100 years or 100 years or so after the Reformation, things stood as they were. There was no real challenge to that thinking that God is the author of salvation and God is the one who makes salvation a reality, that brings it to become a reality apart from people. Just remember this, our understanding of everything has to be weighed in the balance of Scripture. In other words, what we understand needs to be what we understand Scripture teaches, not what our human nature tells us is right or fair or sounds reasonable or this, that, and the other. That should not enter into the picture at all because you have a simple nature that will lead you as far astray as you will let it. Almost 100 years after the Reformation, or sometime after, I don't remember exactly what the dates are, but within, within the 100 years or so, there was a revolt by a group of people called the Remonstrants. And what they were protesting was the idea that God determined before all time who would be saved. We sit in a church today where that is, what, that is what the vast majority of believers believe. That what God does is he makes salvation available to anybody and everybody equally and equitably. That any time any person of their own free will is able to choose Christ or not. It's what's called Arminianism. Very often, as a Reformed person, you may be looked down upon in today's church. Just as if, if you're an Arminian, then there may be Reformed people that look down their nose at you too. And both groups running around in the world, the other one can believe what they believe. But what, the, the, the big difference here, guys, is this. Is this question, is that is, does God save people? and Does God do everything necessary to make that not a possibility to actually make it happen? Or is there some point in time where the free will of man enters into the picture? 
That is what's called the Arminian view. That we choose Jesus Christ based upon our own free will to do so. Not because God has already actively brought us to the point and enabled us to do it. Like I said, the reformers to the man believe the second. And the water just began to get muddy sometime after that. And the biggest argument you get from people is this, is that is not fair. It's not fair for God to let particular people to salvation at the very beginning of time. That to have fairness, all people have to have the ability to choose Christ or deny Christ without God doing anything in them. Now, that appeals to human fallen nature, right? That sounds good. That sounds like maybe that's the way it really ought to be. But when it comes to things like this, guys, what we think, what we believe, what makes sense to us as sinners is not necessarily what God's truth is. To have that view, you have to, under, you have to believe this. Now, Paul is already, Paul is building on, on, on foundation stones. He's been placing in the road all the way through Romans. And one of those is this, is all people have sinned and all people have fallen short of God's glory. So there are no squeaky clean people. Everybody, anybody that's going to be saved from their sins has to be saved through Christ. That's the only way. All people are guilty. But the picture the Bible paints of us is this, is that when we fell in sin, the totality, every aspect of our being was affected by it. The Bible says over and over that our will is in bondage to sin. That we have everything but a free will. Matter of fact, the term, phrase, free will never one single time appears in Scripture. Not once. You would have to say this to believe that, that when we fell into sin, that there was an island of righteousness still left within at least some of us. That it wasn't a total fall, that it was not a complete fall. That God has left a little teeny tiny speck of ability in us to express that own free will the Bible never one time even talks about. And the charge is this, if you don't believe that, then you believe God is evil. Because only an evil God would choose at the very beginning of time. Let me just tell you a story. But only an evil, evil person would believe that. Let me tell you a story. Uh, like I said before, if you know, if you're reformed today, you're in the minority. 
most places you go. The only time you're going to be around a bunch of Reformed people is when you go to Reformed events and Reformed churches and general assemblies and things like that. If you go to most just open church kind of things, most of the people there are going to be Arminians or what are called semi-Arminians. You're in the minority. For a long time, I've been the only Reformed pastor in Dunellen. There was a guy that was here before I was that was kind of moderately reformed, but not so much. Uh, I used to be very active in the ministerial association. I don't want to go into it, but I really stopped a while back. Let me just tell you that when I first started doing it, I would walk out of some of those meetings wondering if half the guys in the room were even saved. Seriously, that's the status of the church, universal church today where very often it doesn't seem like pastors can even articulate what it means to be a believer. And articulating things that sound anti-Christian. But there was a particular person, he knew I was a reformer, and he used to rag, and let me tell you, I never said anything to him about any of this stuff at all. He used to rag on me. He looked down his nose at me. He made jokes about me. Because I was one of those reformed people. Because I believe in a God that is so unfair that he doesn't give everybody the equal and equitable opportunity to have salvation. And I had a number of conversations with him, and I, I never did this in a group. I always did it in private. But one day he was ragging on me, and some of you know Eddie Fulford. He's the pastor of the First Methodist Church here. He has been for years. Let me tell you, it was, he was a breath of fresh air that came into the Methodist Church when he came. The guy before him was one of those people you wondered about his salvation. But this other guy was ragging on me this particular day, and Eddie spoke up. He said, weren't all Christians reformed in the beginning? Didn't they all... You know, at the Reformation and from that point on, didn't they all believe this? And the answer to that question, yeah, I didn't say anything, but the answer to it is yes. You're the one who's drifted away from these fundamental things, not me. Don't rag on me. You need to, you need to be able to answer the question why it is you've gone to where you are. You're the one that's drifted. You've the one that's gotten off course. And even Eddie Fulford understood that. We were having a conversation another time, just he and I privately. And he started in on this reform stuff. And we were talking about this particular passage. And he goes on and on and on. I'm listening to what he's saying, you know, about man's free will and to be unfair of God. God, my God would never do something like that. It's just not right. It's not fair. And this, that, and the other. And so I ask him about foreknowledge. What does that mean? Well, and the, and the common response to that is this, is that what foreknowledge means is this is God, because he's not limited by time. He can look ahead in the future, and he sees what people are going to do. 
So the perspective of the Armenian is this, is, is what God did is at the very beginning time, he looked ahead into the future to see who would believe, and then he went back and he wrote their names in the Lamb Book of Life based upon knowing that they would eventually come to faith just because he's not limited by time. But it didn't take long to shut his mouth because I asked him one question. And that question is, if what you believe is right and what I believe is wrong, how do you bring it into the context of what Paul says in Romans 9? Remember, the infallible rule of interpreting Scripture, and that is Scripture interprets Scripture. So if there's something that's in question you're wondering about, you've got to consider what the rest of the Bible says about it, and, and the things usually that are in very close proximity to it are going to be the most important, most valuable ones because they address more specifically exactly what the author is talking about at that point. And guess what? Romans chapter 9, you cannot, you cannot understand Romans chapter 9. You can't plug it in to make sense based upon the understanding that Armenians have about Romans 8. It's impossible to do that. Paul says some things in Romans 9. The only way you can understand them is understanding that God has foreordained absolutely everything that comes to pass. There's a lot more to this idea of foreknowledge. I mean, literally, it means knowing beforehand. You know, from a human perspective, that would be, you know, that I knew that this, that, or the other was going to happen before it actually happened. We understand that anything we might even know in that, in that sense is not a, a certainty anyway, that there are always things that can come along and, and change outcomes that we anticipated uh, that would be different than outcomes that we anticipated, right? The Arminian view also does not give credence to what the scriptures say, and that is that we are, it, it, it describes us, like we said before, in being bondage to sin, of actually being dead in our trespasses. Not just a, not a little bit living. There's not a little life, spiritual life left in us. There's not this island of righteousness that enables us to, to choose Christ or not choose Christ freely of our free will, again, which the Bible never talks about. Before Christ, guys and gals, the Bible describes us as dead in our trespasses. Period. Can a dead person breathe life into themselves? Well, another passage that's very important here is John chapter 3. Well, Jesus says this, and this is Jesus speaking. He says, unless you were born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Can a dead person cause themselves to be born again? Seriously. 
you know, dead body laying on a slab, can that somehow miraculously that body just decide it's going to live again and get up and walk and talk? Answer to that is obviously no. Did Lazarus get up and come out of the tomb on his own accord? Jesus told him to come forth. God called the heavens and the earth into existence. He spoke the words. Do you understand that what we're talking about is there's something necessary for fallen sinners, and that is that they be recreated in a sense? And God is the only one that has the power of creation. One of the reasons that some people run for this, from this Reformed perspective is this, is they believe that it's, it's going to be detrimental to evangelism. You know, if God's already predetermined all this kind of stuff and this, that, and the other, why, it doesn't matter what we do, so why would we even bother telling other people about Christ? Because they're going to ultimately come to Christ some way anyway. It should have exactly the opposite effect. That is this, is that when you know that you're saved by God himself, not because of yourself, not because of what you do, but because of what he has done for you, it ought to motivate the blazes out of you to tell other people about Jesus. not the other way around. And there is some comfort in knowing that, that, that whether or not I share the gospel with my neighbor determines whether or not they're going to hell or not. Do we really want that? Is that the world that we want to live in? Do you want that responsibility of knowing that your brother, your, 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 your husband, your wife, your distant relative, or somebody living in Timbuktu that came and you met them or whatever, that their salvation depends upon whether you tell them about Jesus or not? Is that what you want? How many people would be in hell today if, if, if they were dependent upon you to save them? Dependent upon you to tell them about Jesus. Do you want that responsibility? Not me. But when I'm telling you guys that when you really lay hold of this stuff and you understand how special you are to God, you can't help but just radiate the gospel forth from you. Out of gratitude. out of understanding that Christ came in this world not just on a mission to make salvation available to you, but he came on a mission and you yourself, in fact, were part of that mission to save you. Because for some unknown reason, God chose, who does the choosing here? God does the choosing, not us. For whatever reason he has, he chose you. And he's made everything happen to redeem you.
What about this? Do you want to be in a position where you can actually lose your salvation? Maybe you lose it for a day here or that now. You get it back again. And, you know, you've seen people. The altar calls, they come, you know, and whatever, and they live maybe accordingly for a little while, but next thing you know, they're back at the same next thing. They're at the altar call all over again, being saved all over again. Is that really what you want? Having the idea that you can just as easily fall away from your faith as you came into it? Just an on-again, off-again thing? Totally dependent upon you, that free will that you've got? Is that what you want? Understand that there's comfort in knowing that God saved you. There's so many people out there today, you, you almost cry when I think about this. There's so many people out there, they believe this, that their salvation depends upon their ability to hold on to Jesus. When that, in fact, is not the case at all. Our, our salvation and continued salvation is dependent upon God's ability to hold on to you. Not the other way around. See, when you understand these things, it, 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 it's amazing. I tell you, you may, have, you may have heard the gospel over and over again in your lifetime, but if you're not amazed by it every single time, you think about it and you hear it spoken, you don't understand. And we're going to talk more about this next week. I know we've gone a long time this morning, but again, this is really important stuff. So we've laid the foundation, and we'll move on next Sunday. Maybe you could take some time this week and study through the rest of Romans chapter 8 to better prepare yourself, maybe even 9 to come next Sunday and to engage more directly into a passage that you haven't bothered to read before we even get together. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come this morning and we just rejoice in your greatness and your goodness and pray, Father, that you would just drive home these things with us uh, over and over again and remind us, Lord, just how special Really, we are to you. We confess to you, Father, that these things are a very great mystery to us, and we certainly don't understand these things in the same way that you do. But I pray, Father, that as much or more than anything else, that it would help us to understand just how special we are to you. That you have loved us, an endearing love from before we even were. And you've done everything necessary to make us your very own. 
So remind us, Lord, of these very precious and important, deep things every day. And we know our days will be very different if you do. So we just thank you and we praise you in the name of Christ.